You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. It was Leo Tolstoy who wrote, Happy families are all alike, but every unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. Think about that for a second. So I was chewing on that this week. I thought, mm. if that's true, it's true because every happy family is happy because what makes us happy is love and they have it. And each of us has our own way of unfortunately letting go of love. But I'm not sure it's true, actually. I'm not sure it's the case that happiness in family life is quite so binary as that quote suggests. I mean, if you ask me, George, is your family happy? I would reflexively, immediately, and with great gratitude say yes. But also, if you ask me, George, is your family unhappy? I would have to admit to you that we have found our own ways of being unhappy as well. I'm not sure it's always quite as black and white as is your family happy or unhappy. And so the question is, in whatever kind of family you have, what do you do with the pain? This is what I'd like to reflect on briefly this morning. What do you do with the pain in your home? This summer I wrote a letter home. I was in California doing some study in preparation for the fall and I was um, looking through the book of Genesis and I came upon the story of Joseph in the Old Testament. And I got captivated by it. It's, a, it's like a little novella inside of the Old Testament there. It's long. It's Genesis 37 all the way to Genesis 50, a story of, of Joseph. And as I was reading it, I was struck by how broken Joseph's family is, how really, really messed up the family Joseph is a part of. It's just absolutely uh, devastated by dysfunction. And I thought, you know, there was a, a point in my life where I would have looked at that down my nose and said, man, that's, you know, really unfortunate, really tragic, but I, I'm not sure how people could mess up that much. But I'm not at that point anymore in my life. Um, yes, I've had some teenagers. And uh, when I think about home, I think it's a little bit more complicated than that. And I'm grateful for the story of Joseph. And so I was studying this during the day, and I thought, I'm going to write a letter home, which I did. At the end of the day, I, I got on my computer, and I started to compose an email, which I sent back to my family. And I won't read the whole thing to you. It's very personal. But why, what I do want to read to you is an excerpt from that, which was a reflection on the relevance of Joseph and his broken home to our home, the Hinman home. This is what I wrote. The story of Joseph is a fascinating, complex, and wonderful story. I can't help but be struck by its relevance to our lives. It's a story about the challenges of being a family. Joseph's was typical, I guess, but very far from perfect. And it's a story about growing into maturity and discovering greatness in serving. In this, Joseph went from being a bit behind the curve to off the charts impact. And finally, it's a story of how God is with us from the beginning to the end and how he will use all the disparate and unwelcome seasons of the journey to do more than we can ask 
or imagine. I hope you can tell that the story of Joseph was giving me great hope for my own home. And I want to share this hope with you uh, during this Advent, as we look at the story of Joseph together these four weeks. You see, uh, uh, Christmas in many ways is about home. The season forces us to start to think about what's going on at home, the home that we came from, the home that we're trying to make. And many times there's great joy and gratitude in that. But at the same time, around the joy, around the gratitude, all of us find pain, real pain lurking in the shadows. The culture tells us, no, you pay no attention to that. This is really a season of sort of nostalgia and glowing images. We're presented these pictures of the Norman Rockwell, Martha Stewart, perfect home that we're supposed to all have and create. They say, though, um, that you cannot go home again. And I think that's true because the so-called good old days weren't really quite so good after all. And the only way to find a real home, a true home, is to go forward, to move into the future, not to go backwards. And so this text that I want to share with you, the text of of Joseph in Genesis chapter 37, 50, 50, is really about home. It's really about the home that Jesus Christ wants to give each and every one of us. So with that, let's look at the story. And what I'd like to do this morning with you is start at the very end. Um, I know it kind of spoils the story a little bit, but when you see how the story ends, you're going to never believe how it begins. So would you turn your Bibles to Genesis chapter 50, verses 18 through 21, which is uh, on page 42 of the Pew Bible. If you're able, would you stand with me? Let's read God's word aloud together. When we're done reading, I'll say this is the word of the Lord, so that if you believe it, you can say thanks be to God. Listen carefully, you're reading his holy word, Genesis 50, verses 18 through 21. Then his brothers also wept, fell down before him, and said, We are here as your slaves. But Joseph said to them, Do not be afraid. Am I in the place of God? Even though you intended to do harm to me, God intended it for good in order to preserve a numerous people as he is doing today. So have no fear. I myself will provide for you and your little ones. In this way, he reassured them, speaking kindly to them. This is the word of the Lord. Heaven and earth will pass away, but what you just read never will. Please be seated. Now, if you know the story, when you get to this point and you see Joseph's 11 brothers bowing around him, you gasp for two reasons. Uh, First of all, the dream, and second of all, the family. The dream, you realize, oh my gosh, this is the dream fulfilled way back when, that hurtful, painful dream that Joseph bragged about with his brothers that dream came true and here you see it has the other thing is the family because these men as they gather around Joseph so many years later now are the very men that tried to destroy Joseph's life and Joseph has kind words for them he offers forgiveness and he's got love in his heart did you catch that where it says I myself will provide for you and your little ones you realize 
There's a new family being born right here in front of our eyes. Gasp. This is a surprise. Okay, so that's how it ends. With that ending, you're never going to believe how it begins. Um, now, let's turn back, and you don't have to stand or read. I'll read it to you to the beginning of the story, which is in Genesis chapter 37, verses 1 through 11. And you find that on page 30, Genesis 37, 1 through 11. It might be helpful to, to follow along as I read. Jacob settled in the land where his father had lived as an alien, the land of Canaan. And this is the story of the family of Jacob. Joseph, being 17 years old, was shepherding the flock with his brothers. He was a helper to the sons of Bilhah and Zilpah, his father's wives. And Joseph brought a bad report of them to their father. Now Israel, that's their father, is another name for him, is Jacob. Now Israel loved Joseph more than any of his other children because he was the son of his old age. And he had made him a long robe with sleeves. But when his brothers saw that their father loved him more than all his brothers, they hated him and could not speak peaceably to him. Once Joseph had a dream, and when he told it to his brothers, they hated him even more. He said to them, listen to this dream that I dreamed. There we were, binding sheaves in the field. Suddenly, my sheaf rose and stood upright. And then your sheaves gathered around it and bowed down to my sheaf. His brother said to him, are you indeed to reign over us? Are you indeed to have dominion over us? So they hated him even more because of his dreams and his words. He had another dream and told it to his brothers saying, look, I've had another dream. The sun and the moon and 11 stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his father rebuked him and said to him, what kind of dream is this that you've had? Shall we indeed come, I and your mother and your brothers, and bow down to the ground before you? So his brothers were jealous of him. But his father kept the matter in mind. So how do you like Joseph? <laughs> what do you think of him? Is he good to his family or not? I got to tell you, for generations, both Jewish and Christian commentators have worked so hard to try to get Joseph off the hook here, to try to, to paint him as some, some kind of a hero. But I got to tell you, that's not the way I read him at all. I read him as some kind of an insecure prig who's had a little bit of spiritual insight, who's using it as a club to beat up all the people around him. And you know what? I know people like that. Every other reading seems to me like a whitewash. There's a guy named James Farmer tells a story about a woman who late in life came into some money. She became very wealthy and she wanted a story written of her uh, home. And so they went way back and they chronicled, researched her uh, relatives and the ghostwriter she had hired to do this project came across one of her ancestors who had uh, been a murderer actually, he had been sent to Sing Sing and electrocuted. 
And uh, she didn't want anything of this in the book, but he said, well, like, out of journalistic integrity, if I'm going to do the story of your home, I got to include this story. And so they negotiated back and forth about how to word this very delicate subject in her past. And uh, this is what they came up with. One of her grandfathers occupied the chair of applied electricity <laughs> in one of America's best-known institutions. He was very much attached to his position and literally died in the harness. Now, a lot of us have things in our past we'd love to whitewash over as well. But look, you cannot whitewash over Joseph. If you do that, you're going to miss the grace in the story. If you're going to do that, you're going to miss the whole point of the story. You see, Joseph's brokenness is part of the pain in that home. And this is all about a home that has been absolutely overwhelmed by pain. And I think actually even this need to find innocence in the home is part of the dynamic that has been destroying Joseph's home. I mean, where would you place blame? Think about it. Where does the blame belong in, in this home? It's easy to do with somebody else's family, right? But if you're married, you might naturally look to the spouse. In verse 2, we, we read about Bilhah and Zilpah. Now, these are two of Joseph's stepmothers. And all of a sudden, we, we understand what that's all about. We realize this is a family in which uh, people have to, had to compete for marital love, the spouses. Now, if you're a sibling, you might look at the brother. Uh, we see in verse 2 that Joseph brings back to his father a bad report. In Hebrew, there's a double bad in there, which suggests most likely it's a false bad report of his brother shepherding in the field. And we realize immediately that this is a family in which brothers, siblings, have had to compete for love. If you're a child, you might like to place the blame at the feet of the parents. And we see here in verse 3, in fact, there's, there's been horrible favoritism in this family. Joseph, Jacob loves one son more than the others. He gives them this robe. It's a, either whether it's a, a robe with long sleeves or a multicolored robe. It doesn't matter. It's clear it's a privileged robe. It's not a worker's robe for sure. It's more like a management robe. And he's given it to one and only one of the boys. And he's done that, we read, because he loved Rachel, the wife of his old age. And so he's playing out his affections for his wives through the children. A very bad idea, by the way. The brokenness of the marriage is being reflected in the way the kids are being parented. They're really proxies, these children, for the pain in the parents' lives. We realize, hey, they're competing for love at the parental level. Parents. Now, if you're a parent, you might like to place the blame at the foot, feet of the children. And in fact, by, by the time we get to verse 10, Jacob, the father, has had just about enough of Joseph, the son. And even there's, apparently there's a line of dysfunction that even Jacob won't cross. And so he rebukes Joseph. He says, really? Are, you, are we actually going to worship you, Joseph? It's kind of narcissism. And we realize that we, this is a family in which siblings are competing for love. Joseph is this dream of his brothers loving him finally. So where, where's the blame fall? I mean, I just everywhere, right? Everywhere. Okay, Joseph can blame his brothers. His brothers can blame his father. His father can blame his wives. And his wives, they're going to blame jo uh, Jacob's father, Isaac, right? Everybody is to blame for this thing. 
And so here's the question for you. Why would God choose such a messy family? Why would he choose such a messy family? Keep in mind, this is God's first family. This is Israel's first family. If there were a white house in Canaan, these would be the occupants. These are the people. These men will be the fathers, the patriarchs of the 12 tribes. So this is supposed to be the paradigm. This is supposed to be as good as it gets. Why would God do that? This is not a perfect family. This is not even a good family. This is a home filled with pain, real pain. And I got to believe the good news in this passage is that God acknowledges our homes are messy too. After their baby was baptized, a family was driving home from church and in the back seat, one of the boys was crying kind of uh, without ceasing and uh, mom and dad couldn't figure out what in the world was wrong with him. Finally, um, they teased it out of him and the kids said, um, you promised the pastor that you would bring us up in a Christian home, but I want to stay with you. You know? <laughs> and you go, yeah, even our kids know how broken our homes are. All of our families are messy places. And the good news of this text is that God comes into the mess in our homes too. I mean, that's what it struck me this summer as I thought, man, this is amazing news. There's no hero in this story. And you know what that means? There doesn't have to be a hero in my family either. That's good news to me because I know I'm not a hero and I can stop trying to make other people the heroes to fix the pain in our family as well. And here's what I want to say to you this morning. God may not fix your home. He might not. But he does promise to fix his home in you. Make sure you get that. God may not fix your home, but he does promise to fix his home in you. Because what you're learning here is that home is actually not a building. Home is actually not a place. Home is not a family. Home is ultimately a relationship. It's a loving relationship. It's the loving relationship for which you and I were created by a loving God. That's what home is. It's a relationship with God made known to us only in Jesus Christ. There might be other reflections of home, but this is the real thing. You and I have a deep yearning in our soul for love. Let's not confuse it. Joseph was confused. I made an interesting discovery this week as I studied this text. You know that the Hebrew word for bow is the same, like the word that means to like bow down in front of other people is the same Hebrew word for worship, to worship a God. And I think Joseph was very, very confused about his dream because I think he was confused about his home. Remember this dream with his brothers bowing down. I think Joseph thought somehow he was the center of the home. That he was the hero of the home. And that the home was all about him. His family was about him. He was receiving worship. And they were worshiping him. It was about him. You could forgive a 17 year old for thinking that. But he was just wrong. And I love how beautiful the story is when it ends. Here in chapter 50. Did you catch this? As the family now encircles later in life. Around Joseph. Mature as he is. He says do not fear. I'm not in the place of God. Did you catch that? I'm not in the place of God. This is a family that doesn't circle around me or any one of its members. This is a circle now. We've discovered there is a God in the center of this family. God has made his home in this family. That's the good news. 
And Joseph finally, finally, finally gets it. And it's out of that that he begins to make a new home. I will provide for you. I will provide for your little ones. This is the insight that makes the difference for us as well as for Joseph, that God fixes his home in us. And so let me ask you then about your home. Where do you find pain in your home? Where? And then what do you do with that pain? Well, I want to suggest two answers to that question. One is, bring your pain to Jesus. And the other is, bring Jesus' love to others. First of all, bring your pain to Jesus. This is going to end the blame game. This is going to end my incessant fixation to deflect blame and lay it at somebody else's feet. This is going to get rid of what I would call the if-onlys. And you know, we all have them, and I don't know what your if-onlys are, but they're things like, if only dad hadn't left. If only mom and dad hadn't split up. If only you would be more flexible. If only I could go back and relive that season of my life. If only I were married. If only the marriage weren't failing. If only we could get pregnant. If only you would speak more. If only you would listen more. Now, I don't want to deny that there is real responsibility in our homes for things that we've done poorly. But the fact is, by assigning responsibility, we we solve nothing. By going back into the past and trying to fix the home, we get nowhere. In fact, I think we're more likely to make it worse. And this is not what happens to Joseph. Joseph presses forward. And we get this beautiful thing at the end in chapter 50, verse 20, where Joseph says, he looks around at these people in his family and he says, you intended this for harm, but God intended it for good. Now, I don't think there are too many people in our families that actually intend harm. I don't think you probably intend harm so if, if God can work through someone who even intended harm, imagine what he can do when we just harm, but we don't even intend it. See, see the possibilities of this. It's not important to go back and assign blame or responsibility because there's a greater agent, there's another agent who can take everything from the past, all of the broken pieces, all of the disparate and unwelcome seasons of our lives, and can turn them into something good can pour into them his redeeming, healing benevolence. That's what it means for him to fix his home in us. Apostle Paul understands this and marvels at it in the great uh, chapter 8 of uh, his epistle to the Romans, where he says, who can separate us from the love of Christ? Could anything get in the way? If God is for us, who can be against us? And then he says this, we know that all things work together for good for those who love God and are called according to his purpose. Because you, he says, are being conformed to the image of his son in order that he, his son, might be the firstborn within a large family. Jesus has come to be born into a large and new family, the family of God. So bring your pain to Jesus, not to the other people in the family. The second thing we do with our pain is we bring Jesus' love to others because there are others in our family who hurt besides ourselves. And when you find that Jesus fixes his home in your life, 
He's going to fix his love in you. Jesus taught this. He says, um, I'm going to abide in you. Now I want you to abide in me. Make your home. I'm making my home in you. I want you to make your home in me. And then he says, I want you to love uh, as I have loved you. What he means by that is, I want you to take my love and share it with people. My abundant, unconditional, bottomless well of love. It's not just for you, but it's for the people around you. So you find that when Jesus starts to fix his home in you, you start to create family where it didn't exist, wherever you are. You'll find that uh, you're no longer competing for love and, and that brothers are no longer rivals, that boyfriends are no longer jealous, that spouses are no longer demanding, that children are no longer manipulative, parents are no longer controlling, neighbors are no longer strangers. Why? Because they're not looking to get love from somebody else. They already are getting it from God and Jesus Christ. And as they orient to other people now, out of his abundant love, they have plenty to share. Recently, I was talking to um, somebody in a coffee shop, and he said something that just stopped me short. He said, um, we're trying to teach our daughter-in-law a new definition of family. And I said, really? Tell me does that mean she has a different idea of family than you do? He said, yeah. Um, and he was trying to be delicate with his words. He said, we're trying to teach her more about the chaos and the fun of family. And he said, you know, frankly, when our son got married to her, we were concerned as parents. We had concerns about this relationship. And what do you do with that? You know, that's a really tough place to be as a mom and a dad. What do you do with that when you have concerns? And he, he, he said, you know, we, we struggle with this. We prayed about it a lot. And what we decided was we were just going to stand next to our son really close and not say a word. And then I could tell he was searching for words that seemed appropriate and maybe not too personal. And this is what he said. With a big smile on his face, that's what Jesus does for us. Jesus stands really close to us and never says a word. He never says a word. And I thought, here's a man who has found a way to acknowledge how Jesus is at home in his life that allows him to move into the hard places of his family with a whole lot of love they would not have otherwise had. Isn't that beautiful? I mean, love is hard. Be honest. Just imagine one of my kids happens to be snotty to me. I mean, this is totally a hypothetical situation. It would never happen to really. But let's suppose one of them is reactive, and I look at that and I go, oh my gosh, that's not lovable. I can't love that. I don't love you when you do that, right? That's honest. But at that moment, if Jesus has made his home in me, I got another plan. I got another option, anyways. And the other option is to take Jesus' love and love that child with his love in the very moment which I have none. To love by faith. That's why, you know, love is hard. Someone said to me the other day, that reminded me of the, the line in Leonard Cohen's song, you know, Alleluia, Alleluia. It's so popular these days. There's a line there that says, love is not a victory march. It's a cold and it's a broken hallelujah. And it is. It's hard sometimes to love. Hallelujah, though, we can love with Jesus' love. Bring Jesus' love to others. Well, what pain rattles around your home? And what do you tend to do with that pain? Are you inclined to lay it at the feet of somebody else or lay it at your own feet? Or 
Are you willing to lay it at the feet of Jesus? Are you able to open up your life to let Jesus make his home inside of you? To let Jesus be your home? Are you willing to let him satisfy your need for love so that when you move out into relationship with others, your concern is to satisfy not your need, but theirs for love? This is the true meaning of Christmas. God wants to fix his humble home in me and in you. So many commentators have commented on the parallels between the Old Testament Joseph and the New Testament Joseph. You may recognize them yourself. Both of them dreamed a dream. Both of them had a brush uh, with a dangerous ruler. Both of them ended up in Egypt. Both of them had a family crisis. And I think in both we see that God comes into the brokenness of our lives. Joseph dreamed a dream. And God never abandoned that dream. Not for Joseph's family. And not for your family either. You know, they had no room for Jesus at the end, but the invitation to you this morning is to make room in your heart for him. And I'm going to offer us a closing prayer. It's a Welsh lullaby. It's a very beautiful poem, and I want to read it, but I want to invite you to make these your words as you invite the Savior, the Christ child, to come into your home and be at home in your life today. Let's pray together. Come to me, O infant holy, eyes of wonder softly close. Tiny hand, release my finger. Weary head, receive repose. Sleep. And love arises in me, waking hope till joy overflows. Lead me, little child so tender, to the place I long to go. Rest in me, O child beloved. May the sweet dreams never cease till I hear around us winging seraphs singing heavenly peace. Then I'll walk through night and shadow by the light that shines in thee, flowing as a stream forever to the blessed fruitful tree, singingly, singing heavenly peace forever. Sleep, sleep, sleep. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.